You're listening to Henley Business Radio. Today is about not polite conversation. Today is about what we need to say and how we need to stand up and, and the difficult questions we must face up to. And this is a part of a conversation which we as Henley commit to and in our little way we'll try and support. And it's my privilege, my absolute privilege to introduce you. Thank you, Peter. John, thanks very much. Uh, thanks very much. You said that um, I was retiring from politics. To me, that would be like retiring from life. Having spent uh, 50 years in politics, starting with supporting my mum and dad in, in Pretoria. Um, so just a little correction there. Yes, I am a visiting professor at Wits Business School and, and loving the teaching, uh, but uh, I'm certainly not retiring from politics. I see myself this morning as a warm-up act for um, Lindiwi, for Bonang and for Tim. And you might ask, what right as a member of the British House of Lords which is kind of proof politically of life after death, I think, uh, um, got to speak on uh, the future of South Africa and the business role in it. And I suppose the only thing that gives me a little bit of credibility in doing that is that big part of me is still rooted in this country. I mean, being brought up in Pretoria, as uh, John said, my mom and dad were jailed and then banned. My mother was banned in 1963, and uh, as the chief activists in the in the family, and one of the many clauses in a banning order was you could not communicate with another banned person. So when they banned my dad a year later, this presented the government with a dilemma that they'd not faced before, which is they'd not banned a married couple before. So they had to embarrassingly give them special permission exceptionally, to talk to one other banned person in the country, and that was each other. And you can imagine they were very grateful for that indeed. <laughs> and eventually, uh, they stopped my dad working as an architect, and when I was 16, the family was forced into exile in London. And a few years later, I invented the tactic of running on the pitch and stopping Springbok tours, which, as John reminded you, made me public enemy number one. Uh, and I received a letter bomb, which fortunately didn't explode. They were being sent by the security forces all over the world for anti-apartheid leaders, and so on. And actually framed with a bank theft, by the way, on a bank theft, which I hadn't committed, committed by a South African agent uh, who looked like me. Anyway, that's the past. I, as, I, as John said, I'm now privileged to be um, visiting Professor at Wits Business School and delighted to come along this evening. And although I despair about the leadership of the country, the political leadership, if you want um, to have a sense of enthusiasm about the potential of this fantastic country, then teaching those MBA students at Wits Business School, and I'm sure it's the same at Henley and Gibbs and, and all the others, it's fantastic talent, fantastic dynamism and commitment and dedication. If that can be unleashed, then there's nothing stopping you, in my view. And I find myself um, witness to an immense struggle over the future of South Africa and also a peripheral participant today, hounding Bell Pottinger, with plenty still to come, as I help support those civil society activists here chasing down the global, including British corporate dimension, to domestic corruption and cronyism. Principally international money laundering, which I'm raising in Parliament next week. We've seen also how not only British-based firms like KPMG, but also McKinsey, 
have become part of the scandal by feeding at the trough of those involved in corruption and looting the country. And it seems to me that any South African business which has anything to do with the Gupta Empire or the Zuma elite is now irredeemably contaminated. And that's, that's got serious consequences for their own survival as businesses. And this is the important thing that I think everybody in business in South Africa today needs to understand. If you look at what, Bell Pat, what happened to Bell Pottinger, this was a company whose mission was reputation management. And the one thing they didn't do was look after their own reputation. And we're seeing with KPMG as well that they're being, they've allowed themselves to be sucked into this vortex uh, and there is no escape from it in today's transparent world. And I think that's a, mis a message that I hope will come, go out loud and clear from uh, this uh, event today. Uh, and I, I just say this as well. Democracy is the oxygen of economic growth and prosperity. And it's got to be constantly fought for and defended, not just for reasons of political and social accountability, but for reasons of business success as well. You may remember that Nelson Mandela very poignantly said to senior activists in 1993, and I quote, if the ANC does to you what the apartheid government did to you, then you must do to the ANC what you did to the apartheid government. But to me, much of the domestic debate is too parochial. Yes, economic transformation of this country is absolutely essential and hasn't really begun. Though it must never be a passport, as it has too often become, to state theft. But I wonder whether many South Africans are oblivious to the reality that this country is not insulated from intense global competition. Every year there are 7.5 million new Chinese graduates. 7.5 million new Chinese graduates. And 7 million new Indian graduates. South Africa has 180,000 new graduates. Of course, yours is a much, much smaller country, one-twentieth of their size. But proportionately... South Africa produces only half their annual graduate numbers, only half, proportionately. That's the benchmark. And my real point is the country is being undercut, not just on low cost by the Indias and the Chinas of this world and elsewhere in Africa, but also on high skills and quality. And not just by these two economic superpowers, but by many other countries. And the only way, it seems to me, this country has of prospering under today's globalization is by high skills and hard work. And to be frank, it seems to me there's not enough of either in South Africa today. Especially when you look at the new technological revolution of artificial intelligence and robotics and what that's going to do to jobs, not just working-class jobs, but middle-class jobs as well. And then you look 
at the base of all of this. Look at the shocking school's performance. I was just, it, it almost made me cry to research the fact that it, although at one time the ANC government spent more on education than any other developing country, and to some extent still does, and school attendance has doubled since the dark of Hearts Eight Days, out of 140 countries in the 2015-16 World Economic Forum's Global Competitiveness Index, out of 140 index, South Africa was marked at 138 for the quality of education below desperately poor, underdeveloped countries like Burundi, Benin, and Mauritania. This is not just appalling, this is criminal. It's not just destroying kids' lives, it's destroying the country's future. And it's unacceptable that money can be siphoned off that should be in the classroom, that the main teachers' union, and I'm a trade unionist, defends poor standards and is involved in corruption. This is unacceptable. You're destroying kids' futures and you're destroying the country's futures. It's got to change. And corruption and cronyism is not just morally and politically unacceptable, it's economically and financially disastrous because it's ruining the economy, it seems to me. And you just look, under Mandela and Mbeki, government debt was reduced from the high apartheid level of 52% of GDP to less than 30%. But under President Zuma, it's jumped sharply to 46% and is still rising. Productivity is very poor. South Africa has fallen by a third over the last 50 years, under apartheid and post-apartheid, while most competitor countries' rates have shot up. This has to change, and civil society and business has to take a lead. And this, I'll come back to this theme. And it's been painful to many of us in the international anti-apartheid movement, and obviously to my parents and others involved in the struggle, that where two decades ago Nelson Mandela's rainbow nation shone upon, down upon the world, consigning apartheid to history, South Africa's since sadly gone from hero to zero. With a political leadership and its business crony elite looting the country, international investors have turned their backs on a nation they once favoured, and in the past, colonially plundered. Yet I think we've got to also have some sense of perspective on the immense achievements since the horrendous legacy of apartheid. South Africa, a few years ago, in 2012, was still ranked 35th in the World Bank's Ease of Doing Business Index, ahead of Spain and Italy. That has since been squandered, but there's still enormous business vibrancy and potential. And don't forget also the incredible achievements of the ANC government since 1994, uh, building millions of new homes, creating four million new jobs, millions more South Africans having running water and electricity. Some economists say that income per capita in real terms has risen by almost a third. These are huge achievements. Massive state bursaries have opened up the country's universities to 400,000 new students, overwhelmingly black. That's fantastic. Although I have to say, and this is the subject of a lecture I'm giving to Vitz Business School this evening, that just like the British student fees system, which is completely dysfunctional, the South African student fee system is dysfunctional as well. And 
there has to be an alternative. And I'll give my own view tonight on what that should be for Britain and uh, possibly for South Africa as well. And as a result of innovative health programs, particularly HIV and TB, life expectancy has been improved, child mortality has been dramatically reduced. So all of these are incredible achievements. But it's painful to me that corruption is now flourishing on an industrial scale, which poses a huge and cancerous threat. It seems to me also almost worse. Cronyism is replacing merit, and the state, especially in the parastatals and its entire bureaucracy, is becoming increasingly dysfunctional, which is lethal for economic prosperity, as well as, obviously, for people at large. Some have argued, and I've been following the debate, that the problem is rooted in the way the country was transformed. And they do have a case. You'll recall that under apartheid, government and big business were run exclusively by the white minority. And when white rule finally came to an end, the fear was that white businesses and investors uh, would flee the country. And it was a real fear. So a deal was struck, as you'll recall, and compromises were made for the sake of a peaceful and economically stable transition. A black majority now ruled the country, the government, but the white minority still ran the economy. Of course, that's been changed with black economic empowerment, and quite rightly so. But in retrospect, I cannot see how any other course could have been adopted by Nelson Mandela and the ANC leadership without triggering a flight of investment and a collapse in the currency endangering political stability. But that things went so badly wrong afterwards is not just because of the ideological trajectory, it's also about a chronic failure of leadership, especially in the last, um, well, since 2009. And perhaps the only option, it seems to me, for the future governance of South Africa is to develop a new social compact where privilege and reward are renegotiated in favor much of a much more equal dispensation. Because the alternative, and I think that's staring you, us, in the face, could be to face a revolution of rising expectations and frustration in which South Africa could once again become as ungovernable as it was during the darkest years of apartheid. And yet, I still see grounds for optimism. A vigorous political opposition, which has made advances, especially at city and municipal government level, a vibrant civil society, forged originally during the anti-apartheid struggle, but then became dormant, continues to both challenge any attempt by the ruling party to undermine democratic structures and processes, and to demand a renewed leadership in harmony with the Mandela vision. You have a vigorously independent media. I know the president doesn't like it, but none of us politicians in power like an independent media, <laughs> but it's very, very important. Outspoken talk radio stations, respected online publications like Daily Maverick and Biz News, the indomitable but commercially threatened good newspapers like The Mail and Guardian and Business Day and City Press, and remember, Nelson Mandela always championed freedom of expression, declaring once, and I quote, none of our irritations with the perceived inadequacies of the media should ever allow us to suggest that the independence of the press should be compromised or coerced. 
a bad free press is preferable to a technically good subservient press. You also have a judiciary that's got powers envied by most other democracies in the world, if not all of them. And the Constitutional Court can and does and all statutes of Parliament which are deemed to contravene the country's Bill of Rights and rule against the President. That's all very healthy, and many other countries envy it. You also have a solid framework of law, financial regulation and corporate governance for the business sector. Basic infrastructure is comparable with many so-called developed nations, and certainly by far the best still in Africa. You still have a very wealthy economy, accounting for around a fifth of total GDP for Africa, with a population of 50 million in a continent of 1,000 million. There's great business entrepreneurialism, some of it present here this morning, though not enough, I think, of an entrepreneurial culture. And the question for corporate leaders posed by John and Henley Business School this morning, and all of us, is will you join the struggle? And if you do, will you also encourage economic transformation at the same time, genuine economic transformation, not transformation to a small elite? Because I don't think you can any more credibly join the struggle without also being part of economic transformation. I mean, perhaps long-standing ANC supporters like me expected too much of the Rainbow Nation. Perhaps it was naive to think that any party, for all the ANC's moral and constitutional traditions, could be immune to human frailty, especially in the face of such immense social inequalities. Could any political party anywhere, including Britain, have done any better I served for 12 years, as John said, in Labour's social democratic government, and we found it tough to advance social justice whilst delivering economic success, though we did do that before the banking crisis very effectively, both delivering social justice and delivering economic success in a world gripped by in the inequality-increasing, growth-stifling growth economics of neoliberalism. That is the big challenge facing all of us. And that's true for any progressive government in South Africa as well. Outside observers have never been able to view post-apartheid South Africa, I think, in a nuanced way. Either it's been romanticized as Mandela's miracle or cynically dismissed as going down the pan. Seems there's never anything in between. I don't think either of these perceptions is accurate. And they never were after the relatively painless transition from apartheid under Mandela, it was always going to be a bumpy road. It was always going to be a bumpy road. Goodness me, you're a very young democracy. Just look at Britain today, the so-called mother of democracies. We're in a mess with a dysfunctional prime minister, a divided government, a weak economy, and a Brexit disaster posing the biggest historic challenge to the country since the Second World War. And I'm not even dwelling on President by Tweet Trump. <laughs> so South Africa's problems are not unique. 
It's still a beautiful country, which may, re- remains an inspiration to me. Marvelous to visit, joyously transformed from the evil days of apartheid when I left as a teenager in 1966. And perhaps the born frees, those young South Africans who never knew apartheid and already comprise over 40% of the population and rising, will claim, reclaim Mandela's legacy for the 21st century. It was a legacy for which a generation of South Africans sacrificed their lives. Tens of thousands suffered imprisonment, torture, exile in the process. My parents, I'm proud to say, amongst them, setting me on a long journey from Pretoria to exile in London to be with you this morning. Thanks very much. And John, as a small token of thanks, perhaps I can give you a copy of my memoirs. This is a shameless commercial plug. <laughs> Thank you. Outside in by Peter Hayes. <laughs> Do you want to be part of the conversation? Follow, comment and message Henley Business School and Henley Business Radio on your favorite social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn.